You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Our focus this morning will be on two 14 through 18, I'll be reading 4, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Have mercy on us for our discontent, our grumbling, our rebellion. We look down on Israel as she could grumble in the face of so awesome a redemption as she had from Egypt. How great our hypocrisy. For we sin in light of the death and resurrection of our Lord. Everything that was only typified before the Israelites come to full manifestation. Father, I pray we not prove like those whose life was one of grumbling, failing to enter your promised rest, but that you grant us faith. The faith of Joshua, Caleb, Grant grace to work out our salvation, to live worthy of the gospel, to live before you rejoicing for your great redemption in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. The unity of our text, verses 14 through 18, can be seen in the bookends on each side. Don't grumble, rejoice. 
Negatively, Paul opens, don't grumble. Positively, rejoice. You shouldn't take the bookends as though they enclose and therefore isolate this section of Scripture. They are marked off, but they're not set aside. The bookends don't indicate that this particular collection of works stands isolated from the rest of the bookshelf. And you can begin to realize that when you realize we now have a third encompassing command. The first two, 127, live, my translation, as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second one, work, we just had it in our reading, 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And now, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You might fail to realize how encompassing those first two encompassing commands are. You can see how all the Christian life is summed up in those first two commands. But what you can fail to realize, what we can sometimes think in ignorance, is that, yes, those two commands sum up all the Christian life. But they don't speak to all of life. As if there was some part of your life partitioned apart outside of these two commands under which all the other commands we see in Philippians fall under. So yes, all my Christian living, all my spirituality, all my discipleship and piety unto God, yes, all that falls under these two. But then there's the rest of my life. And then you come to this command. It offers no exceptions. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things. And so you begin to realize those first two commands encompass every other command. And this command comes under them. And it tells you something concerning all of your life. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Live as heavenly citizens, worthy of the gospel. Work out your salvation. Everything about your life is to be rooted in the gospel, empowered by the gospel, a working out of the gospel, befitting the gospel, magnifying the gospel. Once you know Christ, to live is Christ. Magnifying the gospel in all that you do. All of your salvation, all of your life is to be working out your salvation. Working out your salvation involves doing all things without grumbling or disputing. Living worthy of the gospel of Christ means doing all things without grumbling or disputing. And so this the first two encompassing commands, if you will, are verbs. And this third one is an adverb. 
How do you live as citizens worthy of the gospel? One way is you do all things without grumbling or disputing. How do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? One way you work out your salvation with fear and trembling is by rejoicing. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs demonstrates this listing eight ways, I quote, that he says, murmuring and discontent are exceedingly below a Christian. They're exceedingly below a Christian, one, because it is below the relation of a Christian. God is our Father. Christ, our spouse, as a corporate body, our brother. And we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Two, he says, it is below the high dignity which God has put upon us. Which in teasing out that dignity really relates to you are a son. You are a co-heir. You are a temple. Three, it is below the spirit of a Christian. Well, what's the spirit of a Christian? I don't know that you can do better than just to read Philippians through a few times and you begin to sense the the strength, the, the contentment, the peace, the joy, the tenacity, the glory of the Christian spirit as it's modeled by Paul. Fourth, it is below the profession of a Christian. And and there Burroughs says, what what is the profession of a Christian? Dead to sin, alive in Christ. Fifth, it is below that special grace of faith. Grumbling is contrary to faith. And our faith is not that everything will be ease and comfort. Our faith is not that of the prosperity gospel. Our faith is that through many trials we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And on the other side, peace, joy. Faith sets its sight on God, on Christ, not on our earthly immediate circumstances. Six, it is below those helps that a Christian has more than others. We see others go through trials, but we have the Spirit. We have the promises. We have His covenants. Seven, it is below the expectation that God has of Christians. He expects not murmuring. He is worthy of it. He commands it. Eight, it is below what God has had from other Christians. So look at Job, look at David, look at Paul. Yes, they fail, but to play off of Thomas Brooks, you can sin with them. Sure, anyone can do that. Yes, you can sin with them, but can you stand with them? As they did by God's grace when they stood. In sum, what Burroughs thoroughly demonstrates is that grumbling is a failure to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's a failure to work out our salvation. It is exceedingly below the saint. But with this negative command, what exactly is being 
rejected here. I hope through our study of Jeremiah and the Psalms, you know that this cannot exclude lament. So then what is the difference between lament and grumbling? I think the way you can most easily distinguish between the two, and I don't think you have to examine really hard to understand that lament is born out of faith and grumbling unbelief. Lament bows. Grumbling shakes a fist. Lament cries out. Grumbling mumbles. Under our breath. What might the Philippians have been grumbling about? I think the word that grumbling is paired with tells you. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling seems to have more of a Godward reference. Disputing a manward reference. What they were very likely grumbling about before God was what they were disputing with concerning their brothers. And this recalls all those instances where Paul has spoken of unity up to this point. Anticipates those he will speak of. One twenty-seven. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 2, 1 through 5. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We see something of the reason for all of this when Paul gets to Philippians 4 and says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, my true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And he follows that up immediately by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Tell these two to get along and rejoice. And let your reasonableness be known. But aren't there times when we should rebuke, confront, reprove a brother? Absolutely. How do we know the difference then between sinful disputes and godly confrontation? Perhaps start with this. Just from a personal motive and examining your own heart, are you grumbling about your brother before God? And you're not even thinking, I want to bring this, you're just grumbling 
And then you understand I'm doing that before the God of heaven who sees all things. Are you grumbling about your brother before God? Or are you prayerful for your brother to God? You don't really need to find out whether or not you should reprove your brother until you work that part out. We are commanded to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So I believe the thing you need to ask yourself is, this thing that is irritating me, is it just me, or is the gospel at stake? There's unity around the gospel, and so the question is, should there, whether or not there should be disunity, some kind of confrontation, some kind of something that, that may potentially cause problem, the question is, does that have to do with the gospel? Is it getting at the very, the thing that brought us together is my brother causing the separation already with his action. And so my reproof is not to actually create disunity. The reason for my reproof is to preserve unity. I think you get something of how this works whenever Paul addresses those who are preaching the gospel from false motives. What's his response? Well, I think if he was dealing with that brother, he would, he would talk to them. But publicly his response is, I rejoice the gospel's being proclaimed. Versus those who are insisting that circumcision is necessary for salvation, he calls them dogs. Chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Paul gives two reasons now why we should do all things without grumbling and disputing. First one, so that they might be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Before we unpack the critical word here, which I believe is be, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be. Be is the big word in that. Before we get there, let's deal with the other words. Blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish, because I think they'll inform us how we're to understand that be. I hope you're already having some, as uh, it's brought to your attention, I hope you're feeling some discomfort. Do this that you may be children. Just stop there. Do this that you may be children of God. So first, blameless, without reproach, without fault. You see the outward orientation of blameless. Someone cannot bring a charge against you. It's not that you're perfect, but unreproachable. And the next word has an inward orientation, innocent, pure, undefiled. One, one speaks of it as simple concerning evil. It speaks to the, the state of Adam and Eve in the garden. Innocent. Romans 16, 19 really provides a contrast that I think makes this clear. When Paul commands them, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent 
Not just ignorant, innocent of what is evil. Evil is not a fruit for us to examine as Eve did in the garden. It's not something you for, for you to contemplate. Do not click on evil. Don't indulge your curiosity in evil. And such an inspection of evil, noticing how the fruit is desirable, how it looks good, begins and has roots and is an expression of discontent, unbelief, and grumbling concerning what God has declared good for you to partake of. You can grumble with your mouth full of sin. Enjoying sin is a form of grumbling against God. Now it's with the last phrase, children of God without blemish. I believe that you're, you really get a sense of what Paul is wanting to communicate. And he, he brings that out even more. Children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So dark, light, twisted and crooked generation, children without blemish. To grumble and dispute is to walk the way of this world. It's to be in step with the spirit of this world. The spirit of sin that was first expressed by Eve in partaking of the fruit. What's striking, as you look at, at this description here, is that it recalls a specific instance in redemptive history. When you think of grumbling, disputing, children of God without blemish, there's a specific instance in redemptive history that's, that's brought to, should be brought to your mind, would be brought to the, the person who's saturated in the Old Testament, would be brought to their mind, and it's not an image of the Philistines. It's not an image of the Babylonians, not an image of, it's not an image of the Egyptians. When you think of grumbling, murmuring, disputing, the image, the classic image and expression of that is of the Israelites having been brought out of Egypt. They get no further than the Red Sea and the approaching armies of Egypt. And they turn to Moses with the expression that they will say again and again, you've brought us out here to die. Two months later, there's no water. No food. And they grumble again and again. They're provided manna. Then they grumble because they want meat. They're provided meat. Then they grumble for the meat. There's no water again. And so at this point, rather than praying, they grumble yet once again. In all of that, 
their grumbling before God was brought out with a dispute with Moses. Or you have Aaron and Miriam contending with Moses. Korah, Dathan, Abiram contending with Moses. And so with all that in mind, think about the song of Moses that you have in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses foretells Israel's apostasy. And he sets up that certain apostasy that he expects in terms of his absence. You see how this relates to Philippians. And Paul's speaking to them whether or not he's present or absent in what he wishes for them. He tells them, I know how Moses does, right before the song of Moses. I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm alive with you, you have been rebellious against Yahweh. How much more after my death? And then, with all that in mind, listen to this small portion of the song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. That's their Redeemer. They are no longer His children. Because they are blemished. No longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, perhaps I've only caused you now a lot more trouble with the word be here. But you understand how this command fits into the whole of God's revelation. And you remember that Paul tells us that not all Israel was true Israel. And you remember that in the, the author of Hebrews tells us that some failed to enter God's promised rest, His Sabbath rest. Why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't enter for their unbelief. And what is the chief way that unbelief is manifest with the children of Israel? Grumbling, discontent. Numbers 14, 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Talked about how grumbling was manifest. Or that their grumbling here is, an exp- is, 
is expressed because of their discontent with others. Now do you see how their discontent with Moses and Aaron here is a form of grumbling before God? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That's at that point that Joshua and Caleb rebuke the people of Israel and pray. Plead with them, excuse me, not to rebel against Yahweh. And they made ready to stone Joshua and Caleb and were only prevented from doing so because God manifested Himself in glory and spoke. How are we to understand this? Be, do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be Not grumbling or disputing does not make you a child of God. As if you abstain from those and you become God's child. If you are a child of God, not grumbling or disputing proves you are a child of God. It demonstrates it. A fundamental marker. Read Philippians. He's addressing the saints. He speaks of what the life of the saint looks like throughout this letter. And you cannot escape this. A fundamental marker of the saints is contentment, peace, joy. It's this kind of behavior that marks them out from a crooked and twisted generation. Marks them out as saints, as heavenly citizens. There's a warning in this B... It's the same warning that we have in 3.17-20. through 20. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame with their mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This B is not calling for them to become children, but it's calling for them to act like children of God without blemish. And if there's no action, if they're not working out their salvation in this way, The conclusion is there's no salvation to work out. They're not children of God without blemish. They are and they remain children of wrath. This is why they grumble and dispute characteristically, definitively. The expression of their life is one of grumbling and disputing. I've no doubt that the reason why many churches are so full of grumbling and disputing and yes, pray to God as we did this morning, that there would be, by His grace, a maintaining of the unity of the Spirit as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. I have no doubt the reason why so many churches are full of grumbling and disputing is because there's only a Caleb and a Joshua among them. 
And the rest are an unbelieving generation that will not enter into God's rest. The saints stand out as the children of God among a crooked and twisted generation by this notable characteristic. They don't grumble. They rejoice. And correlative to not being children of God without blemish is them being lights as they hold fast to the word of life. Brings us back to 127 again, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This holding fast to the word of life, the gospel, holding fast to it is a way of understanding the be that you may be children of God. And it relates to working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it brings us to the second reason that Paul brings out here for why they should do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish was number one. Number two, so that, verse 16, in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The vanity would be that they don't be. The vanity would be that they not hold fast. The vanity is that they would prove not to be true Israel because of their grumbling. But what does Paul mean that he wants them to do this so that he may be proud that he didn't run in vain or labor in vain? When a rancher has concern for his herd, there can be concern for them because of what hardship it will bring upon him if his labor is in vain over them. If I'm doing all this in vain, there's a concern he has there and it might, it might concern him But any rancher who, that will always be there. Any rancher that I've ever known of that labors that hard in relation to those animals has a concern for the animals themselves in not wanting his labor to be in vain. I think that helps you get something of what Paul is saying that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Not all pride is an evil. One of the best ways I think you can tell the difference between the pride Paul is speaking of here and the kind that is the very expression and heart of sin is that pride, sinful pride, involves a mirror. Pride always looks. Pride always always looks, and the question you need to ask yourself is, is there a mirror? So, does your pride look in the mirror? Does it look at a fresh mown lawn? Just smile. Here's the thing. That lawn can be turned into a mirror 
You want everyone to see you as the guy who has the immaculate lawn. Does the pride involve a mirror? Paul is a servant. He's been given ten talents. He wants to return them hearing, well done. And can you see this whenever he speaks of the Philippians in 4 and 1 as his joy and crown? He follows that up. You're my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord. (laughs) You're my crown. Stand firm. That I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But how is this not contrary to Paul's admonition to the Corinthians to let him who boasts, boast in the Lord? Or his resolve in Galatians to not boast in anything save the cross of Christ by which he was crucified to the world and the world to him. How is that not contrary to those? Listen to Romans 15 14 through 20, carefully for an answer. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. What work? He just spoke of his priestly servant as a minister of the gospel to present the offering of the Gentiles up to God. And he says, I have reason to be proud of it. But notice he said, I have reason in Christ Jesus. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. This is not the pride, kind of pride that stands against Christ. This is the kind of pride that smiles at Christ. This is not a pride that seeks to rob God of glory, but a pride that seeks to give God glory. Whenever a father helps a child with a task that's impossible for that child, it's beyond them, but the child just wants it. When the father comes alongside and helps them, there are two kinds of ways the kid can respond with pride. So the first is, He grabs whatever it is that's been done and runs off, peers, siblings, mom, others. He says, look what I did. The second kind of pride looks at the father, looks at the work done. Looks at the father, looks at the work done just looks back and forth and it says thank you that was fun let's 
do it again. It's the kind of pride a pastor feels. When one of the flock dies well. Or when another boldly communicates the gospel. Or when another faces a trial with a grin. It's the kind of pride not that will boast before fellow ministers, but that will look up to heaven with gratitude. And thanks. And say to the Father. That was fun. Let's do it again. First Corinthians 3. Paul says. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to the labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. In making this distinction between the kind of pride Paul is speaking of here, the kind we're more familiar with, I almost feel like I'm speaking a foreign language. And I can only plead that for those who have ears to hear, let the hearer understand. But what are we to make now of Paul's final statements in verses 17 through 18? We know we go from grumbling and we end with joy, but how do we get there? Let's gather up some of the pieces first. First, Paul's being poured out here, you see, relates to his being present or absent, as he's spoken of in regard to those other encompassing commands. And now we come to a yet one more encompassing command, and we see this idea of God's being absent or present. Poured out speaks of Paul dying. 2 Timothy 4.6 I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, 2 Timothy 4.6. Second, you can see how this relates to Paul's not laboring in vain because he's gone from doing all things without grumbling or disputing and ending with, instead with rejoicing as an expression of faith. So don't grumble, expressing unbelief, rejoice, expressing faith. But to really make sense of this, let's revisit that passage in Romans 15. Paul says, On some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So there, it's the Gentiles who are being offered up. Now, more particularly, the Philippians who are, offer, who are offered up. The sacrifice of their faith. And Paul wishes. He's a priest who's offering this up, but his final act to be one of being poured out on top 
of that sacrifice. You see, drink offerings were often paired with, they were always paired with, burnt and peace offerings. So here's this burnt offering of the Philippians, and Paul, when he goes out, wants it to be on the white hot coals of their faith. His life, he wants it to be poured out in that way, because that's exactly what he said he was laboring for. Chapter 1, verse 25, he's laboring for their joy and progress in the faith. That's why he wants to be present with them. He says there, I want to be with you for your progress and join the faith. And if I'm poured out, I want it to be on top of the sacrifice of your faith. Paul called for the Romans to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as their spiritual worship. Paul has labored for such worship among the Gentiles, and he wishes to die upon such worship. How's that worship expressed, both by Paul and them? Joy. If death lies ahead of Paul, if Christ is magnified therein, in his church, Paul rejoices. Paul's already said that to live is Christ and to die is gain, 121. And whenever he did so, it was his hope that whether he lives or whether he dies, Christ is magnified in his body. And now he's saying, whether I live or whether I die, it's his hope that Christ will be magnified in the body as he's poured out on the sacrifice of their faith. And if Paul's expression of faith is rejoicing in the Philippians, their expression of faith is rejoicing with Paul. Paul calls them not simply to not grumble because of someone they have to live with, but to rejoice when they lose someone they love. That's where he takes them. If Paul's able to be with them, it's for their progress and joy in the faith. And if he's not able, he calls for their progress and joy in the faith. Faith in what? In the gospel, and that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's joy and theirs are an expression of faith. Joy is faith radiant and blooming. That's what it is. Whether or not Paul comes, he wants them to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Whether or not he comes, he wants them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And even if he's poured out, he wants it to be on the sacrifice. An offering of their growing joy and faith in the gospel of Christ. When Paul says, no grumbling, rejoice, he's saying something far more significant than children. Get along. Act nice. Use kind words. Put on a happy face. John Newton opens one of his hymns with these two stanzas. 
Joy is that fruit that will not grow in nature's barren soil. All we can boast till Christ we know is vanity and toil. But where the Lord has planted grace and made His glories known, there the fruits of heavenly joy and peace are found and there alone. You see, this joy, this non-grumbling joy is supernatural. It's the fruit of grace. It's an act of faith, God-given and preserved faith. The church is the Lord's garden. Grumbling is to be weeded. Joy is to be cultivated. Even whenever the Lord chooses to fertilize His garden with the corpse of one of His precious saints. We rejoice because we know when our God plants a seed, it's for resurrection life. To bloom all the more fully. No grumbling. Rejoice. Why? The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And His glory in His church. Let's pray, saints. Father, forgive me. Have mercy on us again, we cry. But praise be to you, we have every reason to rejoice. No reason to do anything other than rejoice in Christ. Ours are the promises, the covenants. Ours is the kingdom. You will not fail us. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. May we live worthy of the gospel of Christ. May we not grumble, but rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.